Welcome to Geopolitics Decanted. I'm Dimitri Alperovich, Chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a geopolitics think tank in Washington, D.C. If you're wondering what that awful, awful singing is all about, our intro music this week is Vladimir Putin's rendition of Blueberry Hill. My guest this week is Mark Galliotti, a Russia historian and an expert on Russian politics, intelligence services, and criminal organizations. He's also a member of the Silverado Strategic Council and a host of his own fantastic podcast called In Moscow's Shadows that I highly recommend to our listeners to add to their podcast queue. Mark has also written a number of terrific books on Russia, including We Need to Talk About Putin, How the West Gets Him Wrong, that he published in 2019, and a new book just out called Putin's Wars that I also highly recommend. Mark, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Well, let me start with another book that you wrote uh, that I think was actually based on your dissertation that you got out uh, in the 90s uh, called Afghanistan, the Soviet Union's Last War. There's really, in some ways, a definitive account of uh, the invasion of Afghanistan by the Soviet Union and the impact that it had on the country. But I was thinking about this uh, uh, when, I'm, when, when I was um, thinking about how the Russians uh, tried to execute this disastrous invasion of Ukraine. And I wonder if this is too superficial of an analogy. But when you look at what they tried to do in Afghanistan, which was to fly into the Kabul airport, um, uh, have an armored assault on, on the palace and, and, a, and a decapitation of the, the president of Afghanistan, which was successful, and then, of course, uh, mass invasion – uh, of armored uh, forces coming across the border, you look at that you know at a high level superficially, and it seems like it was almost the same thing that they tried uh, in 2022 with a hostile airborne assault on um, uh, on the airport in order to get to Kiev and presumably to try to assassinate Zelensky, and then uh, the armored divisions crossing the border. Do you find at all the similarities between the two plans at a high level, or, or is this reading too much into it? No, I think it's actually quite a compelling parallel on two levels, really. One is exactly the operation itself. This notion that essentially you take the centres of power and the rest of the country falls into line. Now, look, obviously, Ukraine and Afghanistan, two totally different countries, two totally different societies. But this this very, again, top-down notion of how politics works, trapping first the Soviets and now the Russians, you know, without really thinking that the country itself, the people itself, had agency and could decide whether or not they were just simply going to fall into line just simply because now there's a different flag or a different regime in, in, in the capital. So that's the first parallel. But the second parallel is more broadly, you know, why did the Soviets go into Afghanistan? A decision that, frankly, most of the military commanders of the time thought was a deeply stupid venture and tried to speak out against, but were overruled or just simply ignored. And again, you think about it, it was a time when, you know, it was a a great power that was beginning to feel itself in crisis and needed to reassert itself on the global stage. An aging and increasingly out-of-touch political leadership that scarcely really understood what was going on in their own country, let alone other countries, and yet had a sort of bizarre Manichaean view of the world that essentially treats the whole globe as if it's uh, a board game of, you know, 
diplomacy or risk or whatever. And that if they, as they see it, lose a country, it's because someone else has gained it. I mean, in Afghanistan, there was this pervasive idea that the Americans were actually going to take over. Absolute nonsense, but still clearly sort of solidly believed by a number of people within the Politburo, just as the prospect of potentially someday, God knows when, EU or NATO membership for Ukraine was interpreted as evidence of a sophisticated plot to steal Ukraine from Russia, because, of course, Ukraine has to be owned by someone. And if it's not owned by Russia, it's owned by the West. So in in many ways, you know, these two stupid wars, and let's be perfectly honest, I mean, I could almost write sort of in due course a book called Ukraine, Putin's Last War. Um, But, you know, these stupid wars do kind of stem from depressingly similar fundamentals in the political system at home. And do you think also that in both cases, you had a situation where the leadership of the country, Putin in our case and Brezhnev back then, uh, felt that this was a thorn in their side that just had to get resolved at some point and they might as well do it now. And it was uh, time to end the kicking of the ball down the field and and resolve it once and for all? Um, I think in that case, I mean, I think it's slightly different. I mean, Brezhnev... Brezhnev clearly was much less significant a player than Putin. By this point, Brezhnev was probably already sort of pretty much died a couple of times. I mean, jump started back to life. Um, you know, he. I mean, it, we know that some of the times during the discussions about Afghanistan, he called it Czechoslovakia, as if actually this was still 1968 and they were deciding whether to roll in there. So there are, it has to be said, differences there. But yes, this sense of a closing window of opportunity and and a requirement, and again, one that is both political as well as uh, geopolitical, the sense that if we don't move now, then the other side, those nasty others, will somehow sweep in. But also... Politically, you know, part of the reason for the Afghan war was precisely politics going on within the Moscow Politburo. You had people like Andropov, who actually was very sceptical about a lot of the intelligence, but he was beginning to make his bid for power. He couldn't afford to look weak. You had hawkish ideologists like Mikhail Suslov, who in some ways was the Nikolai Patrushev of his age, the sort of lunatic hawk who believes the most extreme notions of the plot against Moscow. Patrushev, of course, is this shadow great cardinal that runs the Security Council in Russia. Yeah, and and who is in effect Putin's national security advisor, even if that's not a title that they have. But also, I mean, I can't help but wonder how far from Putin's point of view, this is a man, you know, 70 years old, we don't know about his health, there's always these these, uh, rumours and such like, but a man who maybe was looking at the 2024 re-election cycle, with a certain amount of despondency and was feeling, look, you know, the big problem for someone like Putin, an authoritarian leader in a system with no rule of law, is how do you hand over power? Because then you become dependent on your successor. Well, he might have thought, look, Belarus is already a kind of a vassal state ever since 2020. I take Ukraine as well. I have regathered the Russian lands. That will be my great triumph. That will establish me as one of the sort of the state-building heroes of the Russian pantheon. Then I can actually step back safely because no one could touch me. I mean, I don't know. Again, that, that is purely speculative. But I mean, I, I do wonder how much there was that sense of, if not now, when is it going to be easier? And the answer is never. 
Well, l- l- let's talk a little bit about the, the cause for the war. As, as you well know, there's the, this active debate uh, between uh, different political uh, communities and international relations scholars of why Putin launched this war with some thinking that this is because of NATO expansion or NATO weaponry or democracy and you know prospects of European Union uh, becoming more entrenched in Ukraine in one way or another. Um, I, I want to run my theory by you, uh, which is that there's no one cause to the war, and you know everyone, uh, you know leaders are human, and Putin you could say is is human as well, uh, even though some may debate that. But um, um, uh, in, decisions like that, oftentimes in my view, are made at a much more emotional level. I doubt that Putin sat down and wrote a pros and cons list of here are all the reasons why I want to do this and here are the problems with it. And my, my thinking is that. Uh, you know, a, a big part of his upbringing, as you know, uh, is is not just his KGB background, which, you know, let's face it, he hasn't been in the KGB for 30 plus years, but the uh, time that he spent as deputy mayor of St. Petersburg, where St. Petersburg was entrenched and uh, run basically by organized crime. Uh, and as deputy mayor, you obviously have to be dealing with those elements. And you can see that coming through in his personality, particularly in the early years when he invaded Chechnya and he famously said, you know, we're going to kill them in the outhouse. It's not a, a phrasing of a KGB officer or, you know, a politician in Russia. That, that's what a thug would use. So I think that in many ways he, he, he thinks like a thug. Um, he thinks like a, a gangster. And, uh, you know, when, when you think about what a gangster does when he's out on the town with his girl – and suddenly another bigger gangster, stronger gangster is trying to flirt with your girl, uh, you're not going to take it out on the bigger guy. You're going to take it out on the girl as, as, as a thug, right? Um, and to me, uh, that may be why he decided to go against Ukraine. It's because NATO is too strong. I can't take on America, but I'm going to show Ukraine you're mine. You know, I view you as mine, and you dare to flirt with NATO, with Europe, with democracy, with all of that. Uh, without any really specifics even behind it, but this idea that you dare to turn away from Russia, turn away from me, and I'm going to need to teach you a lesson. What what do you think of that theory? Yeah, I mean, I think I come to the same conclusion by a slightly different route. In the, I mean, yes, Putin is shaped by his experiences. I mean, and let's be honest, it, you know, before he was a frankly very mediocre KGB officer you know he he was basically running in youth gangs in a ruined Leningrad so he was a thug before he was a, a Czechist but the interesting thing is I think that Putin's notion of geopolitics is a very 19th century one you know I, my, my, my view is that someone like Napoleon or Bismarck would actually understand what he does much better than a lot of modern statespeople and from him look a great power is a warfighting power. And in a warfighting power, you have to demonstrate from time to time, you know, hence things like the Georgian War, which was, yes, it was about Georgia, but it was also about showing everyone you do not mess in you know, what he thinks of as Russia's sphere of privileged interests. But also a great power, precisely, it has a sphere of, influ- of inf- influence. And if you cannot protect that, then you're not a great power. I mean, and I say a 19th century perspective because 19th century was also the era of colonialism, where there was this sense of there are, there are countries that matter, which basically means European countries, eventually Japan, and North America. And then all the other countries whose role is just simply precisely to be, well, who gets to run them? Who gets to control them and exploit their resources and such like? 
From his point of view, a country like Ukraine does not have agency. It's not a real country. Instead, it's just simply a question, look, it needs to know its place. And if we, if we Russians can't show the Ukrainians their place, then we demonstrate that we are not one of the real countries. So, yeah, I mean, in a way, it's all about the naked uh, application of power and about uh, sort of self-image. And whether we're talking about as, as, as a thug or a Bismarck, you know, one could question whether there's a real difference. Um, but the point is, yeah, it, it reaches the same place, which is actually that in some ways it's Ukraine that has to be shown who's boss. And it's not just simply about Ukraine. It's as much as anything else with an eye to the real threat, as he would see it, which is the West. Well, and, and again, th this is no different from a gangster that uh, when they're taking it out on, on the girl, it's not just about the girl. It's about showing to everyone else that, you know, I'm still in charge, right? Um, yeah, exactly. If you don't do that, then basically you are essentially – you are con basically admitting that you are not a serious player. So one thing that really struck me in, in this whole unfortunate uh, episode is that in a, in a whole slew of really dumb decisions, the dumbest in my view has been this annexation. Um, the idea that you're going to annex territories that you don't even control and that you're in the process of actually losing. Um, and, uh, you know, initially I was really puzzled by why he did it. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts on, on, on the reasoning for that and why do it now. You know, the only thing I can come up with is that it was as much of an internal move um, to, to his own elites and particularly the military. They may have at the time wanted to pull out of her song uh, and he didn't want them to and – you know, we know that he didn't want to uh, mobilize uh, uh, the troops for a long time and finally decided to concede to let them do that. But I think it's all, it was almost a trade-off. Okay, I will do what you're asking me to do, which is mobilize and uh, take the political hit on that. But in exchange, I'm, I'm going to let you know that this is Russian territory. Uh, I'm going to annex it in a way that is going to make it difficult for anyone else to return it back because you don't want to be a Russian leader that returns – quote-unquote, Russian lands, and it was sort of a metaphorical burning of the bridges and the boats uh, to indicate to his own regime that there was no turning back. Is that how you see it? Yes. I mean, I don't need question whether or not it's necessarily the, the, the most stupid of so many stupid decisions that were made. But it's, it's one of the more recent stupid decisions. I'd absolutely agree with you. There is, on the other hand, one additional wrinkle, which is a sort of a pragmatic one, which is that given that unless he actually declares war formally, under Russian law, conscripts cannot be sent to serve outside Russia's borders. This may also be, as it were, sort of stacking up another contingency. I mean, so far they haven't been sending conscripts, and they've said they won't. But then again, they, did, they said that they were only going to send volunteers and they weren't going to mobilize. So you know, we, we should take such promises at uh, great uh, caution. But the point is, it may be also giving him the choice, therefore, if he needs to or if he wants to, or if the generals feel it's absolutely required, he can still send conscripts in, in, into the combat zone. But no, broadly speaking, I, I think you're absolutely right. It's an attempt to basically demonstrate, in part to, to the outside world, you know, realize just how serious I am. This is not a bluff, and that's why you need to make a deal with me, because you know that I have more resolution than you do. But also to his own people that says, 
we are not going to be backing away from this. And it, it supports uh, a theme that had been emerging in his, in his rhetoric, which is that this is an existential struggle. This is not actually about Russia and Ukraine. Ukraine is merely the battlefield of a wider struggle against an American hegemonic power that wants to basically force everyone to bend the knee. We will not do so. And in that struggle, he says to the Russians, and it doesn't matter if you're you know, a, a farmer or an oligarch, you have to decide now. There is no middle ground anymore. You are either a patriot or a traitor. I think, again, this is all part of the kind of ramping up and making this uh, sort of the, uh, the new patriotic war, shall we say. There's a growing chorus uh, in Europe and even in the United States, allegedly General Milley is pushing for this as well, that we need to have peace talks and negotiations with Russia. Do you think fundamentally, you've studied Putin for a long time, on this issue, do you think he's capable of compromise? And particularly now that he has burned the boats and annexed his territory, you know, how can he give up an inch of that annexed territory, right, politically for himself? Can he even survive a deal like that? I mean, I think it's hard in that I honestly don't know if this would represent an existential political moment for Putin, but I suspect that Putin does believe it. I mean, remember, this is a man who's had not one but two authoritarian regimes crumbled around him, first East Germany and then the Soviet Union. And we could derive all kinds of reasons as to quite why that happened. To Putin, I think it's, again, it's ultimately because of weakness, that in both cases the regime showed insufficient uh, determination. And clearly he wants to make damn sure that he doesn't uh, follow in Gorbachev's footsteps. So I think he believes that he can't back down. I mean, that said, though, I mean, he is ultimately, in my opinion, a rational actor, a rational actor who believes all sorts of deeply toxic and irrational things and therefore often makes incredibly stupid decisions because he's not actually basing it on proper objective information. But nonetheless, this is a man who can get his head round pragmatic withdrawals and essentially admitting defeat. But it takes him time. You know, we saw that as he was bludgeoning his way to, to trying to get to Kiev. And eventually he had to recognize that's not going to happen. They reformulated the, the whole war to basically focus on the, the southeast. Likewise, Kherson. Exactly. We know that the generals have been lobbying for weeks, if not months, to be allowed to withdraw. Putin didn't want to because it was obviously going to be politically embarrassing. But eventually he was allowed to allowed himself to be persuaded. I think but this how much is do you the think big concern. Those, how much do you think those were tactical decisions? We'll retreat now, but we'll come back later, and the maximalist, the maximalist goals are still there. Look, I mean, the goals, the goals, the ideal is still... I'm sure he would love to take control of all Ukraine if he could, let alone Hirson. Um But I think, look, yes, they, they might have said, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll be back. But the, the bottom line is still that Russian forces withdrew from the city that was meant to be now permanently part of, of the Russian Federation. That, that, that was a political hit. So this is it. I mean, I, I, th I think he can. But again, the issue is really that he needs to be in a position where he realizes that the alternative to some kind of negotiation is worse. And for that, unfortunately, he, will, he and Russia will need to suffer more. I mean, we're in a position in which actually he can, and I think he's wrong, but it's conceivable, he can see a path still to victory. He's clearly now moving to trying to make the war last 
and in the process outlast Ukraine and perhaps most importantly the West's will to continue the, the struggle. So long as he can tell himself that, so long as he thinks, no, 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 you know, we'll be able to hold the line, we've got 150,000 mobilised reservists that come spring, they'll have, been, they'll have been trained and formed into newly constituted units and they can go and sort of also support the front line, even if we can't make any major offensive operations yet, and they probably will try, but even if we can't do that, that demonstrates that this war is not going to be over soon and is the West really going to be willing to put billions of euros, dollars and pounds into Ukraine to continue this? You know, he, he can believe that the answer is no. So I think this is the trouble. At present, he does not see the risks in continuing this war as outweighing the risks in, in ending it. If that changes, I mean, it's going to be difficult, but the one virtue of being an authoritarian leader with all the media under your control is that you can at least kid yourself that you'll be able to spin something as victory. Um, it, but, but we're just so far away from that position at the moment that this is all very much kind of vaporware discussion. But, but you know, the annexations, you know, they, they changed the constitution of the country, right? You, 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 what do you say, that I was kidding? I didn't really mean to annex this territory that you said were forever Russian and, you know, brought all kinds of, uh, you know, messed up history to try to justify um, your reasoning? Like, it's really hard to go back on that, Right. It's hard to go back on that, except what you've got to bear, bear in mind that, that probably no one really cares. And there is Crimea, which actually Russians do genuinely care about, and most Russians, regardless of whether they're supportive of Putin, do think is rightfully theirs. But Mariupol, um, you know, Lugansk, I, I, I've never got any real sense that, that people feel any emotion towards it. The annexation, it's, it's something that happened through legal fiat from, from above, pushed through by a compliant legislature. Um, everyone has to, or everyone who is commenting on it and so forth, has to pay lip service to it. Yes, it would be a, a political embarrassment. It would be a political embarrassment because it would demonstrate that Putin has failed at something. But beyond the real kind of hawkish fringe, no one is really going to be actually complaining about that. And I suspect that if and when we come, well, no, probably when we come to the point of some kind of negotiations, by that point, Russians will have suffered enough that if this offers them the thought that um, their boys are not going to go and die in a trench near Bakhmut and that maybe there'll be some lifting of sanctions and so forth, I think that the last thing they'll care about are these territories. But for the 23 years that Putin has now been in power, in many ways, the source of his political capital and the source of his power has been this idea that he, unlike Yeltsin, is a competent leader, that he can make Russia great again, to borrow another phrase, and uh, that he's not a loser. If uh, he compromises on something like this, if, if he is seen as the person that lost this war at an enormous cost of <coughs> blood and treasure... Um, that can undermine the whole basis for his hold on power, can it not? Look, I mean, I think we have to acknowledge that basically whether or not Putin is still in power, Putinism is dead. The idea, I mean, the thing about Putin's regime was it was an interesting kind of postmodern authoritarianism that did have quite considerable um, 
elements of, if not popular participation, but popular legitimacy at its heart. There was a lot of effort precisely to bring people... It wasn't just simply you obey because otherwise the FSB is going to lock you up. It was actually that there was an attempt to make people feel that there was some reason, you know, sort of why, why they would support the regime. And that, in part, was built precisely around Putin's persona, his image. As you say, he, he was genuinely popular, right? As as a leader, yeah, many ways exactly. for a long time. And as you say, I mean, this is it. The idea of he was the, the competent chief executive. He was the tough defender of national interests, and he was the good czar who would defend Russians from the evil, corrupt boyars. Now, all of those, frankly, were coming under pressure long before, frankly, before COVID, also delivered quite a, a substantial blow. Now, I think basically they are dead. Putin could survive, but he will survive as a classic authoritarian. He will survive on a throne of bayonets built around the fact that he, as long as he can control the security apparatus and a sufficient portion of the technocratic elite just in order to run the country. And the rest, well, everyone just better keep in line or else precisely they will face repression. I mean, I think that's, that's the real sort of... Um, transition that we're already seeing, frankly. I mean, the mobilization broke the last social contract that, in effect, Putin had offered the Russian people, which is, look, let me have my war. But for most of you, unless you happen to be a Buryat or a Dagestani or all these other impoverished people who joined the army because they, were, they had few economic alternatives, but for most of you, life's not going to get that much. It's not going to change that much. Well, now everyone is under the shadow of mobilization, and they're feeling the pinch. Most Russians have burnt through their savings because of higher prices and so forth. Um, you know, for all these reasons. So, yes, I, th I think that you're absolutely right that this could well pose a, a, a serious direct political challenge to Putin. But in some ways, we also have to recognize the degree to which in some ways he's already lost at least his old status. I, a few weeks ago, I had uh, Daniel Treisman on who talked about the possibilities for re regime collapse. And he made uh, a really interesting point um, that I think uh, a lot of people have not uh, spent a lot of time thinking about, but that when you look at the elites that surround Putin, very few of them have deep connections to each other, right? Shoigu, uh, the head of the Ministry of Defense, has very few relations with Bortnikov, the head of the FSB, and so forth. So for those people to get together and try to orchestrate a sort of palace coup, uh, can be very difficult because just the trust and the relationships aren't there. And, of course, they're watched all the time by their FSB bodyguards anyway. Uh, but uh, he made the point that I thought was really interesting, that the regime can just collapse from the internal rot where because the competence of governance has disappeared or is in the process of disintegrating, that you could just see you know, kind of the, the government melting away and, and, and chaos emerging or you know, some sort of uh, a push to to a managed transition where Putin himself will realize that it's difficult to hang on and he'll step down in 24 and try to annoy the successor, but um, the ability of the government to still uh, steal elections may not no longer be there and you could actually have a, a candidate emerge that is not sort of appointed by, by the Kremlin. Uh, what, what do you think of those scenarios? Do you find them plausible? Yes, I mean, look, if we start with the palace coup, which I do think, certainly at the moment, is exceedingly unlikely for all the various reasons you said, and the fact that this is a system which is really quite effectively coup-proofed and precisely built to ensure that there is a constant balance of terror, that all sorts of different agencies are watching and countering each other. 
I think it would take a moment of a very, very sharp clarity to actually force a coup. Because at the moment, look, no one is a Putinist. Everyone in this system is a ruthless, pragmatic opportunist. And they're constantly making cost-benefit analyses. But the point is the risks of going against Putin seem vastly higher than the risks in just keeping your head down and hoping things work out. Now, if something happens down the line, um, you know, mass popular protests or similar, and people are now thinking, look, I could end up hanging from a lamppost, that maybe will clarify people's perspectives. But the point is, I think we would actually exactly have to have some kind of really real systemic challenge. In terms of the, the decay of the system, see, I'm not sure, or rather, you know, it, I'm not sure if it, if it would actually lead to the end of the system. In some ways, I think we are heading to a kind of Brezhnevism 2.0. And we're seeing this, I mean, with, with people, you know, there are still people who are very bravely protesting. But most people have realized, look, protesting gets you nothing and it has high risks for you and perhaps most importantly for your family. And therefore, really, I think people are just kind of turning off. It's interesting that we've seen the statistics that, in fact, people are less listening to TV news, for example, these days. They just think, oh, I just, you know, I, I know it's bad. I just don't know about it. So we, we're seeing that kind of retrenchment in. We're seeing it also within the elite. Again, certain suggestions that we you know the the rise again of the local kind of corrupt cabals in the regions where you've actually got the local police chief and the FSB director and the local you know, governor and so forth, who are all meant to be working as Moscow's prefects, but instead, not least because probably you know, everyone's son-in-law is married to everyone else's cousin and so forth, um, you know, they're actually now conspiring to just do what they can, bring what resources they can to their region, skim what they can out of that, and just have a quiet life. You know, I think generally, we, we, in some ways, we are seeing already a kind of passive disintegration, shall you say, of this system, even though there are still a lot of really smart people within the system. I mean, this is, this is the irony. It's actually the real, you know, heroes of the Russian Federation, the people who ought to be having the stars pinned to their chests, are not the Surovikin, General Surovikin, the theater commander, or Yevgeny Prigozhin with his Wagner Group mercenaries. They're people like Central Bank Chair Nabulina. They're people like Prime Minister Mishustin, Moscow Mayor Sabyanin. You know, all of these technocrats actually are doing an astonishingly good job of moderating the impact of the current situation. They, they still and make the trains run, right? Exactly. And, and, and so I think the, the system can actually last quite a long time. But again, what it does is it loses resilience. It loses capacity to respond to the kind of black swan events, the unexpected things that we can always expect will at some point happen. But we don't know if that's going to be in three months' time, three years' time, or 13 years' time. You know, the, I think these systems can actually survive that kind of slow degeneration quite a long, uh, you know, quite a long time. The question is really going to be very much exactly about Putin. Will he feel he has to you know, find a successor? There's all the stories about his illness. I can't help feeling that the stories about Putin's illness, just like the stories of the palace coup, are consumed so avidly in the West because they represent the sort of deus ex machina. That you know, it's oh, an easy way out, great? right? It's an easy exactly. way out. Exactly. If, if and- basically God God does the job for us, um, you know, and, and hopefully everything will will change. Yeah, it reminds me of 20 years of stories we've had about the Ayatollah in Iran being, uh, you know, on the door, uh, death's doorstep. 
And, uh, you know, anytime I see Putin in the videos, he seems f- fairly healthy to me, but I'm certainly no, no doctor and, and certainly not capable of analyzing anyone's medical conditions over a two-minute video. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think, this, I mean, unfortunately, we are in a position in which you know, this is a system which in some ways is already dead but can last a long time. I, mean, I would say Tsarist Russia died in 1911 when Prime Minister Stalipin was assassinated. And that was the end of the last serious attempt to, you know, belief that they could actually reform this system. But still, I mean, it lasted through, it lasted through three years of the extraordinary pressures of, of World War I before finally collapsing under its own weight. You know, these, these kind of systems, they're like dinosaurs with tiny little brains on the end of very long necks that you know, essentially can die, but it'll take them quite a while to realize it. Mark, you're a longtime scholar of Russian intelligence services. What's your sense on what the people inside the FSB, the SVR, even maybe the GRU, are thinking right now? They certainly have access to real information about what's happening and understand that things aren't going well, and um, many of them have been expelled from Cushy overseas assignments in the U.S., U.K., and, and elsewhere, and um, um, you know their ability to uh, send their kids overseas to private schools in London is is getting foreclosed. Um, they might not be happy right now, right? And and particularly curious for your thoughts on Narishkin, the head of the SVR, who was so famously schooled by Putin in that bizarre uh, Security Council meeting that was broadcast in February, just before the war got started, where he clearly didn't even know. Uh, what Putin wanted, whether it was annexation or recognition of DNLNR. So he seems to be on the outs, even though he is allegedly Putin's old buddy from the KGB back in the 70s. Uh, what's going on with him and, and broader intelligence services in your view? Well, this is the interesting thing because there is definitely a, first of all, a, a leadership crisis at the very top. I mean, Narishkin, I mean, for all he likes to talk about his you know, old, old boy network ties with Putin. You know, he's, he was never, you know, he isn't a close Putin proxy or, or confidant, hence why he could and was publicly bullied on camera. Although I, and, I, th- I think that, you know, he's talked publicly that uh, they, share, they shared a, a dormitory together in the KGB school, right? So they go way yeah, back. Yeah, exactly. Well, this is it. But I, I, this, you know, it, this is the funny assumption. I mean, if I think of people I was at school with or at university with, doesn't necessarily mean I like them all. Um, no, but I mean, the point is, he, he was, he's not really a, an intelligence professional, despite his KGB background. I mean, he is, he is a political courtier who needed to be found uh, a nice, cushy job when he was going to be moved away from being Speaker of the State Duma. They gave him the SVR. And really, from that point, he's been looking to what his next job would be, um, you know, because he's also very, you know, performatively into history. Um, there's talk of him perhaps becoming a senator. You know, it, he was never really a, a, a spook. So in some ways, he's had his already you know, one foot out the door for years. In the case of the FSB, well, there, I mean, Bortnikov, I mean, he's 71. He is apparently suffering from real uh, health problems. And frankly, he probably would have already been sort of retired had it not been for the circumstances. His anointed successor was caught in some corruption scandals. And then, you know, the, the war means that no one really wants to sort of destabilize things. But again, there is that sense, I think, that he is a bit of a lame duck director. So the interesting thing is there's probably going to be 
something that Putin hates doing, which is actually, you know, he's, he's very, very conservative. He likes to hold on to people as long as he can, hence the increasingly gerontocratic leadership. Um, but nonetheless, I think he will have to actually find new heads for at least two of his agencies. That's in some ways one part of the additional reasons for the ferment within the agencies themselves. Because absolutely, look, I can't help thinking, I'm sure there are people who joined the FSB, for example, the Federal Security Service, precisely because they did want to defend their motherland and because they thought it was an exciting opportunity to do that. I can't help think that they are in a teeny tiny minority. Most people join it because exactly this, you know, it's, it's a great opportunity to enrich yourself. And if I think of the FSB officers who, well, I mean, I won't, probably won't be meeting for some time, given that as of June, I have been barred from entry from Russia. So, so have but, I just recently, yeah, too. <laughs> well, there you go. We, we, we can form a club. Um, but nonetheless, you know, if I think of the, the current and former FSB officers I met, you know, some of whom are actually really quite impressive, some of whom are distinctly under impressive, but in all of their cases, you know, they live well beyond what their salaries would, would indicate. Uh, and often they are fairly candid, frankly, about the degree to which their positions just give them all kinds of extracurricular opportunities for enrichment. Now, in those circumstances, precisely now, okay, so you're still doing relatively well by Russian standards. But, you know, do you really want to confine yourself to holidays in Sochi rather than the south of France? Um, you know, are you comfortable with the fact that you will have an increasingly dated iPhone and that you can't get spare parts for your BMW? So you might have to buy a Moskvich um, soon. You know, I mean, again, I think for, for many of these people, this is, this is not what they wanted. They really wanted the early Putin years when you could steal at home, spend and bank abroad. I mean, that was the glory days of the kleptocracy. And frankly, the security apparatus are the bastions of Russian kleptocracy. So, no, I mean, I, I think that there's considerable disquiet. There are also business opportunities for them because as you get an increasing element of, of state control you know, rolling back over the economy, beginning to see almost like a, a return to the Soviet planned economy because, after all, we know how well that worked. Um, you know, I think obviously there are going to be some opportunities for enrichment there. But no, but broadly speaking, I think in some ways we shouldn't, we shouldn't assume that they're all happy with the status quo. I think like the wider elite, which they are, I mean, they, they may wear uniforms some of the times, but really they're not much different from the rest of the elite. They are finding that there are greater risks for them, there are less opportunities for enrichment, there are less opportunities to enjoy that enrichment. This is all of a problem. But again, from their point of view, though, at present, better hold on to what you've got than gamble it in the thought that something could be better. So you mentioned that people may be um, unhappy that they may not get the latest iPhone. I wonder what the true impact of the sanctions is going to be on the Russian economy, though. And I'll tell you a quick story. A friend of mine was recently uh, vacationing in Turkey where – he happened to be staying at a hotel where you had a bunch of senior Russian elites staying at as well, political leaders, business leaders, etc. And he was asking them uh, when he ran into them at breakfast about the impact of sanctions. And they basically said, we can get anything we want as long as we pay 20% more. The black markets through Kazakhstan, Armenia, and everywhere are very active. The trade is going up. And uh, this is not at all a problem. Um, 
how do you how do you respond to something like that? That uh, you know, yes, we've risen, uh, the cost has risen, but they can still procure most of the things that they want to procure. Yeah, I mean that's frankly that's pretty much inevitable. Um, you know, how how many figures within the North Korean elite? live like ordinary North Koreans. Uh, and in fact, I, I was hearing that actually at present, apparently the most valuable in terms of um, profit for weight and risk commodity for, for Russian organized criminal smugglers is designer handbags from Italy, which are, are under sanctions. Um, and yet presumably, you know, oligarchs, mistresses need their handbags. And so there's a huge trade, particularly through Belarus, um, of, of, of those things. So yes, of course, this is, this is going to happen. But again, what we have to realize is the degree to which this, in a way, precisely adds a surcharge. And I think, frankly, 20% is probably on, on the low end and will, will become you know, greater over time, especially as there's now more effort to actually try and redirect the efforts of, of smugglers into the things that the state wants rather than oligarchs. I mean, we, we've had interesting cases of you know, fridges being uh, smuggled through Kazakhstan so that their controlled chips can be taken out and repurposed for use in missile guidance systems, that kind of thing. Um, so I think, look, the, the impact of sanctions in, in the long term, yeah, it, it's not going to affect the people who have enough spare cash to be able to pay whatever surcharge is needed for whatever goodies they, they want. The thing is more about the scarring effect on the economy as a whole. Um, you know, I mentioned the Moskvich car, so they're now sort of very much sort of touting that they're going to be putting out a car that doesn't have foreign components and such like. Well, that's true. But, you know, at the moment, their they're so-called special edition, in order to do that, it has no airbag, it has no GPS, because they can't domestically produce that. So actually, you know, special edition means welcome to the 1990s of motoring. Um, you know, I think a lot of the, the, the Russian economy will precisely be, be doing that. It will become more and more degraded. It, you know, it is not it, going to it collapse. It will look like Cuba? Well, With their I mean, 1950s cars? Yeah, kind, kind of that. But again, you know, it, it, it will actually kind of... I, I do feel in so many ways, just as we're already seeing that with the military, increasingly it will look like 1980s Soviet Union for, you know, most people. There will be enough food. There will be all kinds of basics. There will be smuggled goods for, the, you know, if you, if, if you could afford it. But the days when, you know, Russians could revel in consumerism are clearly over. For most Russians, they don't have the money to pay the surcharges. And therefore, that's, that's who we're going to feel it. And therefore, we're going to see a much more open gap between rich and poor. I mean, this is the irony that had happened un under Putin, that obviously you know, the ultra-rich were vastly, stratospherically richer than ordinary people. But ordinary people could live well enough that they, it wasn't quite so obvious. I think we'll go back to the days when it's obvious that, you know, ordinary people will be driving 15-year-old cars and with 10-year-old 10, 10 cell phones, while there will be still people who will be purring past in, in, in the roads with a, with a brand-new Mercedes and a, that, that brand-new iPhone. So, again, I think, you know, this is actually not just a, a sign of the scarring that will take place on the economy, or that is taking place on the economy. It's also going to have a political impact because, again, people will be once again... Um, constantly reminded of the costs of Putin's war to them. So you mentioned that uh, Putin likes to keep his people around him for a very long time. Uh, he seems in, in many cases to go to great extremes in that regard where he doesn't hold anyone accountable. I mean, the fact that this war has been prosecuted uh, with such a disastrous strategy and the fact that Shoigu and Gerasimov 
the head of general staff are still in their jobs is quite remarkable, right? In most uh, – even other dictatorships, um, they'd already be fired or worse and yet they're around. And you know, it strikes me that Putin almost never fires anyone unless you're disloyal. Uh, but even someone like Kudrin, who you know just uh, got a cushy job to run Yandex, one of the Russian uh, top tech companies, you know everyone sort of gets another place uh, to go in their retirement or uh, what have you, and and never really leaves. Um, why, why do you think that is? I think I mean in part it is a sort of a, a primal sense of basically you know if you make it into my gang, then that's it. I've got your back. Um, and that's, I think, both, you know, Putin is not a man who, who trusts easily. I mean, you mentioned Shoigu. It's interesting. I mean, Shoigu is about the only person who's made it into Putin's inner circle who wasn't either a KGB buddy or a St. Petersburg buddy. Um, so, you know, I, th- I think there is that sense. It's also part of the, again, a, a little sort of mini micro-social contract, which is precisely that, you know, if, if you continue to be loyal to me, then I'll, I'll look after you. I might have to move you if you really are bad at your job and the scandal is especially bad, but I will still look after you. Um, and in that respect, it's almost like you know, the old KGB thing about, you know, they would always get their agents back. Even if you're, you know, your cover's blown, you're imprisoned or whatever, you know, it might take us a month, it might take us a decade, but one way or the other, we'll get you back. Um, but beyond that, I think it's also the degree to which if we look specifically at the business of Shoigu and Gerasimov in this war, I mean, Shoigu's greatest sin appears not that he actually encouraged this war. The evidence suggests that he was quite lukewarm about it, but that he didn't have the courage to actually stand up and say, Vladimir Vladimirovich, the basic precepts that you're assuming are the case, that Ukraine is not really a country, that the Ukrainians would not resist and so forth, are wrong. Um, you know, he didn't stand up for his own generals, who were clearly concerned. Well, he didn't want to be schooled like Narishkin, right? So he yeah, exactly, an example. exactly. So, 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 you know, he he basically let it happen. You know, that's that's that that's his great sin. But it would then be very difficult, given that basically Putin imposed his own notion of how this war should be fought on the generals, to then turn around and blame the generals. You know, ultimately, Putin knows he needs these people to run his war for him. But secondly, look, Shoigu at the moment is performing an invaluable service of being Putin's flak jacket. At present, it's open season on Shoigu. You obviously have people like Kadyrov and Prigozhin, um, sort of the Chechen dictator and uh, the mercenary leader, very much sort of excoriating him. But you also have a lot more, you know, in the, uh, the mill blogger, social media channels and so forth. And, you know, Shoigu is being metaphorically a good soldier and accepting the blame for things that otherwise people would really notice that really ought to go towards the commander-in-chief himself. So, you know, this is Shoigu's great uh, duty at the moment. And obviously Putin could sack him. Yeah, exactly. Now, Putin could sack him. And in the short term, you know, I'm sure that that will get, you know, a lot of people saying, oh, at last he's seen sense, at last we'll we'll, we'll get a proper minister of defence or whatever. It doesn't matter, though, who he appoints as Minister of Defence. That is not going to change the realities of the war on the ground. And the point is, that's a card you can only, Putin can only play once. Um, you know, he, he could sack Putin, uh, Shoigu for a kind of a quick boost, but then it will be much harder to not, for, for people not to realise that the problem is not with who is the Defence Minister, but who is the Defence Minister's boss. So you mentioned Prigozhin and Kadyrov. Uh there's, uh, you know, a great deal of interest in, you know, every word that these guys put out on Telegram. 
uh, and, and I think a very inflated sense of their importance uh, in the Russian system. Uh, you know, talk a little bit about that because my sense is none of them have a significant political base for Kadyrov outside of Chechnya, certainly, and none of them are, you know, have any, any prospects of becoming a replacement for Putin or anything of the sorts. But uh, do, you, do you view it the same way? Yeah, absolutely agree. And I must admit, my, my heart sinks when I p- pick up the phone. It's another journalist who wants to talk about will Prigozhin become the next president or even will Kadyrov? You know, I mean, not a prayer. Look, both of these people, they are conflict entrepreneurs. I mean, this, this war provides them with opportunities, you know, room for manoeuvre, chance for enrichment, chance for self-aggrandizement. But if nothing else, they are both roundly despised within the wider Soviet elite. They are both thuggish outsiders who could be arrested tomorrow. I mean, let's face it. Yes, so at the moment, Prigozhin runs Wagner. If Putin had Prigozhin arrested, there will be a Prigozhin light waiting in the wings to take over within two hours. And certainly none of the conscripts that he's grabbing from prisons to fight in Wagner would fight for him with any sort of loyalty. No, exactly. I mean, the idea is, oh, well, they'd all vote for him. But, you know, again, we have to remember that Wagner has... I mean, the highest estimates, which I think are way too high, suggests 40,000 armed personnel. Well, the armed forces have 850,000. Uh, you know, I mean, when, when, you know, when it comes to it, where is the real power? It is not with, with Prigozhin. So you know, unless one, one sees a scenario in which absolutely the Russian Federation collapses into civil war, uh, with each sort of city establishing its own city-state, then... A, a condottiere like Prigozhin could, could find opportunities, given that I regard that as a vanishingly slim scenario. No, I mean, the, the, these are not serious players. Uh, and in some ways, the whole point about why they make such a big fuss is exactly because this is how they have to operate. These are people who need to constantly demonstrate to Putin their value. They're like sharks. The point at which they stop swimming is the point at which they drown. And that's why they are constantly in the, in, the, in the news. You know, people like Bortnikov, they don't have to keep tweeting or telegram channeling things because they have an institutional power base when they're confident of. And similarly, there is uh, this uh, breathless uh, uh, watch of uh, any clips that are coming out of uh, Russian TV, agitprop, propaganda uh, from Solovyov and Dmitry Kisilov and a range of other characters um, and people are looking into those shows for glimpses of what Kremlin might be thinking you know are they threatening nuclear weapons are they trying to destroy Britain with with a with a new uh, nuclear missile and and uh, trying to infer what Putin might be thinking you know my take on all these characters is none of them speak for Putin none of them know what Putin is thinking and all of them are trying to guess of how to curry favor with the regime do you see it the same way? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, they are in, in their own way also conflict entrepreneurs. They're hoping that, uh, A, that they can come up with something that's even more extreme and even more toxic than the others, to, because you have to, to, to be noticed. And they're hoping that it'll be something that coincides with or chimes with what, what the Kremlin is thinking, because, again, that's how you get rewarded. But these, these are all people who essentially are trying to be mind readers. And reading Putin's mind at the moment has proven to be a pretty thankless task. So, no, I mean, I think this is... I mean, yes, of course, it, it says something about 
the way that, that Putin's Russia has, has been going. We, you know, we, we can infer something. But, you know, it, it, it's always a caricature of, of, of the real policy that we're getting. And for those people who, yes, who do think that, you know, some latest comment from one of these sort of toxic, really sort of shock jock type geopolitical commentators tells us what the Kremlin is planning next. Well, that way lies madness. It strikes me this was like uh, listening to Don Imus here in the United States or another shock jock to interpret what the White House might be thinking. Uh, you might have about the same level of success. Uh, let me ask you this. Um, you know, one difference, of course, between the Afghanistan war in the 1980s and this one is that Putin does not have any type of information control that the Soviet Union had back then. Uh, people know uh, what's happening because they can access Telegram. They hear it from word of mouth. They know that soldiers are right now freezing to death in Donbass. They're seeing videos from conscripts um, or mobilized personnel, I should say, that uh, are talking how they're not getting underwear and warm clothes and what a disaster uh, things are on the front lines. You know, Internet is not shut down in Russia. VPNs are accessible. You can still get information. This is not the 1980s. And that seems to me to be the strategic vulnerability for his regime is that you can't keep this clamped down and keep telling people to listen to Channel 1 in Russia for all of your news because they will hear it from many other sources. Yes, and I think this also helps explain why we're actually getting often this quite sort of strident uh, attempt to present this as a war against Satanism and, and you know, whatever else is because almost like you, you, because you can't pretend the war isn't happening because you can't pretend that it's all going smoothly to plan, despite the early attempts to do so. Instead, you're having to constantly up the ante and almost drown out uh, in any kind of opposing view. But, of course, it's proving to be counterproductive. As, as I mentioned, you know, people are less likely now to watch television. People are, are sort of tuning out. I mean, this is in some ways the risk. It's that anyone who wants to know what's going on can know what's going on, as you say. But a lot of people just don't want to because you know, from their point of view, what's the point in depressing myself? Because there's nothing I could do anyway. And so what this does is it, it does mean that uh, it, you know, not, not every Russian is, is as angry as they should be. But on the other hand, again, it all speaks to the delegitimation of the regime. That something that took really about seven years into the Afghan war to truly percolate, that situation where you, you know perfectly well that you're being lied to and therefore you reach a stage where you routinely disbelieve whatever the government says even if ironically enough in that particular instance there is a wolf that the boy is crying about um, well likewise I think we're very quickly getting to that point now which Russians they may not know exactly what to believe but they do know that they can't believe the official line and therefore they, 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 they just opt out. And it means that they are going to be, in some places, potentially prone to hearing alternatives, you know, the conspiracy theories, all the other sorts of lines. Because when you, when you assume that the government is lying, then that creates a potential vacuum that other people can fill. And particularly when you assume that they're lying about something that's relevant to you. So when the Kremlin, in, in the form of Peskov, the, the uh, spokesperson, uh, spokesperson for Putin is saying that um, we've mobilized 300,000, we have no plans for more, and you are not believing that, you might decide, you know what, it's time to, for me to go abroad because who knows if I'm going to be next uh, uh, to be wrapped up in this mobilization wave, right? 
Exactly, and this is why, what, you know, for every one reservist that they mobilise, two to three people actually have left the country. I mean, you know, what a sort of statistic that shows. And the thing is, because the Kremlin has lied successively on this very specific issue, at first it said that only, you know, professional soldiers would go. Then it says, oh, well, no, we've just got a single wave of mobilisation and that's going to be over now. They're saying they're not going to be sending conscripts in, in, into battle. You know, they, they say all these various things. And, you know, after a certain point, you, you do lose any kind of credibility. And so precisely, people will work on a, on a defensive basis. And, of course, the interesting thing is, look, the people leaving, you know, on the whole, these are the entrepreneurs, these are the people with, with particular skill sets, whether they're academics or, or IT specialists or whatever, people who have something transferable that they can build a new life with. And these are exactly the people that Russia needs. Um, you know, the, 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 the brain drain, that has been entirely created by how the Kremlin has handled its own population, is again going to be one of these very long-term scarring features. Because you know, the, these, once these people set up shop, you know, in due course, if there's a change in regime, when there's a change in regime, some of them will go back, some of them will not. So again, yeah, it's, it's another one of the long-term costs of Putin. So, so I do agree with you on that issue of brain drain, Mark, but I'm also a little bit hesitant of um, overemphasizing it because, of course, there's been much worse brain drain in 1917 with uh, you know, much of the elites of Russia leaving the country. Then during the Civil War, millions more left than you had World War II with millions dying uh, in that very brutal war. Um, and yet, despite all of that, Russia still became, or Soviet Union still became a superpower, despite losing millions and millions of very productive members of their society. We haven't seen anything of that scale um, uh, taking place in the country right now. So I, I, I am a little bit dubious of how much effect it's going to have. Obviously, it's not great, but is it really going to be fatal? Oh, no, it's absolutely not fatal. I said it's just one more of the incremental factors. Um, you know the, the, the long-term scarring effects of this war, and we should also note that look, this is this is in you know, less than a year's war. Unfortunately, I don't see this war coming to an end soon, and I doubt this is the only mobilisation wave. You know, when there's a second wave, unless of course the Kremlin has brought in you know exit visas or similar controls, but you know it becomes harder and harder for people to think, oh well, no, that's that that's the end of it. You know, I think you know we. We can Im we can imagine more more of this happening, but no, I mean you're you're, you're right. You know we we can't compare it to what happened in 1917, and we should never underestimate the, the the sheer quantity of human capital, which is to be found within the Russian population. I mean I mentioned it. You know in terms of as we've already seen. I mean they have managed the impact of sanctions much more effectively than most international observers anticipated. It has to be said. So you know yes. We can't write the Russian system off by any means. Last question for you, Mark, um, and that's about the long-term strategy. Um, I wrote a piece in Foreign Affairs a few months ago with my friend Sergei Ratchenko uh, from Johns Hopkins Sice about the fact that we need to drop our illusions about Russia one day rejoining the Western alliance, the Western system of government, becoming a democracy and you know aligning their – uh, foreign policy with ours, because regardless of who is a leader in Russia, I think that becomes less and less likely. 
Um, but the hope that we can have for Russia, um, which is still a, a win in, in our view, is to uh, push for Russia that uh, develops almost a non-aligned strategy, an equidistant uh, strategy of equidistant from China and equidistant from the West, um, realizing that we will have points of tension and, and points of competition, uh, but they will have the same with China uh, and perhaps growing in nature as they become more and more economically dependent on China as a result of this war. And um, this is not sort of a reverse Kissinger where somehow you know they'll realize that China's a bigger threat and they'll jump into our arms. I don't think that that will happen and I don't think anyone in Moscow is interested in that happening. But you could have a, a Russia that still has... Um, this uh, Russian elites still have this, uh, you know, idea that uh, is is becoming more and more of a dream that uh, it is still a power that is relevant on the world stage, and if they have this non-aligned role uh, on the world stage, trying to manage the relationship between China and the United States, um, that is good for them, and frankly, that is better for us than the Russia that exists today. Um, what's your take on that, and do you, do you think that that is possible? I think it's entirely possible. I, mean, I think there's, there's, there's two separate issues I'd want to raise here. One in ter- is in terms of Russia becoming a democracy, which I, th- I think is entirely possible, but it's all about time frames. I mean, I think, in a way, the next political generation, whenever it gets to take over, which is essentially going to be a kleptocrat, is a kleptocrat generation, may well see increasing rule of law within Russia, because, you know, put it very kind of crudely, you, do, you want no rule of law when you're stealing everything, but once you've stolen everything, you want it fixed and settled so that you can pass it on to future generations without having to fight for it each time and such like. And the thing is that you can have rule of law without democracy, but you can't have democracy without rule of law. That was a mistake of the 1990s, when in some ways you know, the Yeltsin regime tried to create a kind of democracy when it suited them. Um, but without the, the fundamental underpinning, underpinnings of rule of law. And so it might well be that the political generation after that will be a democratizing generation. So, you know, it's all about how Olympian a time frame you're willing to take. But much more immediately, I very much agree about this, this notion of a Russia that doesn't just simply sort of, as you say, fall into, into the West's arms. That's not going to happen. And indeed, because you know, when we say the West... The war has created, a, I would suggest, entirely artificial sense of Western unity. In fact, the, you know, the, the fundamental dynamics of the US versus European foreign policy are very, very different and were, I think, becoming increasingly divergent. And in some ways, if the war actually accelerates the sense that the European Union cannot just simply preen itself by being that it is a regulatory superpower and that somehow manifests itself in, you know, in, in every kind of, of sphere, but also realizes that sometimes you actually have to have martial muscle as well, then I think actually it will accelerate that process. And in this context, it's not even that I think that uh, Russia will be petitioning to join the European Union any day soon. But on the other hand, you know, if we do think of a more you know, pluralistic world order in which actually the European Union, you know, while essentially kind of broadly aligned with with the United States, but nonetheless has its own distinct interests. That actually provides an interesting also situation for Russia to be in. So you're not just simply finding yourself squeezed between a China and a West, which is a very difficult and uncomfortable position to be. 
but instead you are in a position where, where there are you know, more interests around which you can triangulate. Um, and I think that both genuinely reflects Russia's national interests. I mean, I think it's a European country, but in geopolitical terms, it is a Eurasian power. Um, but it also actually provides some kind of comfort. I mean, look, Russia is still going through the pangs of end of empire. And obviously, it's reached its most toxic and aggressive form with Putin and the other sort of you know, 70-year-olds around him. Um, but nonetheless, it's not something that's going to disappear. I mean, for heaven's sake, Britain and France haven't worked their way fully out of these, this sort of sense of uniqueness and specialness on the world stage. And we've had a lot more of a, of a run-up to it. So I think this also will, will speak to that need for Russia to feel that it has some specific place in the world. But it doesn't have to be a specific place that is enforced by tanks rolling over neighbors' borders. And uh, we, we should all remember George Cannon, who famously said that Soviet Union is temporary, but Russia is forever. And uh, we're going to have to deal with Russia in some way or another long after Putin is gone. Absolutely. That was the fascinating, always fascinating, Mark Galliotti. His own podcast is In Moscow's Shadows. Highly, highly recommend uh, everyone listen to that. Mark, thank you so much. It's been my great pleasure. You part of me still For you were my thrill